so glad to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less, and don't let anyone ever rip you off. Our main website's Clark.com, and our deal site, ClarkDeals.com. Coming up in just a few minutes, when you go somewhere and they offer you a place to charge your phone or your laptop, there's something I want to make sure you know not to do. And coming up yet later, people are looking for ways to make money on the side. I want to make a suggestion to you that I think is really important and so overlooked. So I want to talk about an industry, it's a big industry in the U.S. that is going through a radical transformation, not as great as when the automotive industry emerged in horse and buggies basically became obsolete, but the auto industry is going through a massive evolution, if not revolution. And there are too many car brands in the world, too many car manufacturers, and we're going to see a lot of things change over the next few years. I want to make sure you're aware of and the opportunities that are available. And I want to dial back in time So you think about there used to be Saturn as a brand. There used to be Pontiac as a brand. There used to be Oldsmobile as a brand, just to name some examples. And those brands all went away, right? We are going to see a lot more of that kind of thing, creating true opportunity for buyers and potential hazards for sellers. But let's talk opportunity for a second. So once a brand is discontinued, their vehicles become what's usually referred to as orphan vehicles. That their value in the marketplace as a used vehicle usually falls apart. Doesn't mean parts aren't going to be available. Doesn't mean it won't be reliable transportation. But because the brand no longer exists, It creates an opportunity as a used vehicle buyer. Now, we went through the shuttering of brands last decade because of the economic cycle, the the banking scandals that led to the Great Recession, led to a lot of car brands being uh, terminated around the world. But this cycle is more fundamental is it's going to be because of the change in how vehicles are powered, the transition to electric vehicles that is taking flight worldwide, and also autonomous driving that's going to change how vehicles are purchased, how they're used, and who owns them. And so a lot of nameplates are going to disappear. And a lot of companies are going to merge Recently, there was a big fuss about some automakers in Europe merging, and that didn't happen. But the trend is clear, and you're going to see an acceleration in brands that vanish. So it means that if you buy a vehicle new and you want to dump it later and the brand has since been discontinued, you might lose some money on that, and it would 
behoove you to keep driving that vehicle, even if it wasn't your first choice to keep it. But for used vehicle buyers, just like in the example with Saturn, Pontiac, Oldsmobile, as we look forward over the next couple of years, there are going to be great buying opportunities, buying used cars of these orphan brands as they're going to appear in the marketplace. And we will have a smaller number of manufacturers. There will be a smaller number of owners as brands are merged out of existence or merged under the corporate umbrella of somebody else. And it's absolutely going to happen. And this is one that's weird for you to get your arms around. But what's coming is the ability for you to not ever own a vehicle again and only use transportation on an at-needed, as-needed basis. This will not be true in rural America, but it will ultimately be true in suburban and urban America as vehicles will become autonomous, no steering wheel required. I saw the CES, the consumer, what used to be known as Consumer Electronics Show, the Mercedes test vehicle that has no steering wheel no accelerator pedal, no brake, nothing. And just sit in there like you're sitting in a rolling living room. That is so on the way. Joan joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Joan. Hello. How are you? I am good. How can I be of service to you, Joan? Well, I have an engagement ring that I would like to be able to figure out what to do with. I know I've heard your um, stories before about how diamonds have um, gone down in value over time due to the um, man-made ones being made. And so I was trying to figure out the best way to sell my engagement ring. I've looked on to the online stuff that's available where you drop your ring into a FedEx envelope and off it goes and you don't know where it goes and then they send you a check. And I just don't trust that system either. Yeah, that's, um, that's ring, pretty nerve-wracking, isn't it? It is, because you just don't know who's going to get that ring, and and if they're going to, if they send it back, if it's going to be the same ring or not. So, do you um, have a sense what uh, the value of the ring was at the time you originally got it? What the diamond was worth? I I do have that, and over the years we have gotten it appraised um, just because we had kept insurance on it. So I have the the different appraisals from the different years, and it didn't really vary that much. But we ca- we carried insurance on it, and, and what, I know that what kind of value would you guess that it has as a retail ring? I don't know because it's been 27 years I've been married, and now I'm not, and so I oh, have I'm no sorry. idea how much engagement rings go for but it was valued around $8,000 over the years. So, so I don't know if you so would... So it's somewhere if, if a, a carat and a quarter? Is that about what it is? It is, yes. Okay. Pretty good guess on my part, huh? I know. <laughs> so I was trying to get a, a, a general ballpark for that because it will go for um, less than what you've been insuring it for, unfortunately. Because... Right. Right. I, I've, I've known that you're never going to get that full value. And also I've had people say, well, why don't you turn it into something else? And I love that ring. It's, it's a beautiful ring. Um, I just don't want anything to really remind me of him. I don't have kids, so there's no one to leave it to. I don't have 
um, really any family that I would want to give it to. So I kind of just want it to go, and then I want to use the money to put into some sort of investment. Even though it would be a little bit of money, it will be something towards um, something in the future. All right. So the first step, I would say, is you need to find a graduate gemologist in your area who can map that stone for you, which is different than when you just go to a jeweler and they give you an appraisal. Okay. Has it ever been mapped where, uh, do you know what a, a diamond map looks like? No, I don't. So a graduate gemologist will put it under their scope and they will... They will find whatever flaws there are in it and all that, and they'll map that stone, give it a grading quality and all that. And then you can you can take with that, you can go to um, one of the places people like to go are consignment shops, you know, jewelry consignment shops, where you pay a commission uh, if and when the diamond sells, and that tends to generate the most money. But, now... But, with that, with the commissions, do, do you know what they vary? Because, I mean, what, what should I be looking That varies for? <laughs> a lot by local market, and that's where the graduate gemologist you pay to map the stone will be valuable for you because okay. he or she will be able to guide you where the uh, best outlets uh, he or she might feel would be for you to put it for sale in your market. Okay. And we'll have a good sense of what that will bring as a loose stone. Because essentially you're selling it wholesale. Right. Well, it sounds like a good plan because I was very nervous about sending it off in an envelope um, and not really knowing where it was going to go. And this sounds like a better option for me. Also, if the graduate gemologist feels comfortable and confident of a particular outlet that he or she would want you to send it to, then you could be more comfortable doing that. But that's a special uh, professional designation that you can find um, in your area. If you search online, you'll be able to find a graduate gemologist, call him or her. You can also go to the GIA website at gia.edu, and you'll be able to find people who are uh, qualified graduate gemologists in your area that you could hire to do that for you, to do that evaluation for you and mapping of that stone for you. Patrick's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Patrick. Hey, Clark. How are you doing today? Great, thank you. So you got to get a loan for your home and nobody wants to lend to you. How come? Well, it's been, it's kind of interesting. You know, we want to put our house up for sale within the next year and wanted to get in our area in uh, Arizona, we we know that uh, a lot of people are looking for brand new or looking like a brand new home. So we want to do some updates. All right. So wait a minute. And Let me stop you right there. Every home buyer, whether they're, they're buying a, a used home that's a relatively new used home or an older used home, they want to buy one that they can walk in and just move into. They want it to be their fantasy. So they don't want to see things broken or anything like that, and people see what they see. So your instincts are right, but that would be true not just in Arizona. That's true in all 50 states. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So we, we were hoping to, uh, we have a, a, you know, we've I've been, in, been in the home for uh, about 18 years, been paying our mortgage on time or early for 18 years, 
and uh, I've got about $300,000 in equity in the house. And we were just looking for a small amount, twenty dollars to $30,000, to do some, some final upgrades before we put it up for sale. Um, we went to, a, I won't name the bank, but we went to a major bank, and we also tried a credit union. And the issue is they're not, they don't seem to be too friendly to small business owners. Oh, is um, that we're so true? Yeah. We're in sales, so our, very, our, our income varies from year to year. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes, you know, it's not so good. And my wife also works part-time in uh, the service industry. So we actually make decent money, except after our Schedule C, um, and the other thing is, too, I wanted to mention, we both have 820-plus credit scores and no other debt. But because our, our write-offs um, actually bring, and they're legitimate write-offs that we spend money on every year, it makes, you know, it brings our actual income or taxable income is the key. And that's where we've kind of hit a wall. Everything else I feel looks good. But the taxable income, according to the big guys, sure looks bad. Is How- not enough for a small loan. And to me, it's like it's our equity. We should be able to borrow against it. And um, we've so been let's talk. Them let's a talk solutions. Let's talk solutions. So, okay. We're hoping you've got one. All right. So one thing, but with those credit scores, forget that you are thinking in terms of doing a home equity line of credit or anything like that. Instead. Just go to Prosper.com and LendingClub.com, which are kind of like co-ops for borrowing money, and see if you can get approved for doing the home improvements you want to do. Because their main criteria is going to be your credit score. Oh, good. Good. And so I like that. Now, the other thing is that Ironically enough, in your situation where they won't lend you against your home equity, where there's so much equity they could be protected, people are more likely to issue you a credit card with your credit scores, and you could do the home improvements, a lot of them, with things that you would charge on your credit card. We know that's an option also. So, and so the idea is shorter, a little bit higher on on interest. Sure, but, but the but the purpose out there. But the purpose is to turn around and sell the home pretty quickly. And you need to get hopefully to, that's the case. And so you need to get to the path that gets that done, and that's why Lending Club and Prosper would be my first option. But the fallback would be the credit cards, even though the rates are high on those cards. As if you don't have enough to worry about when you're out and about, plugging into public USBs to charge your phone or your laptop or any device, electronic device, is something that IBM warns you you should not do because hackers have figured out how to load malware onto those USB charger stations that you see in hotels, most principally in airports, coffee shops, whatever, and then when you plug in to charge your phone or device, you are, in fact, plugging into malware that corrupts your device and gives access to other prying eyes you don't want to have. So it's weird, but it's like we're dialing back in time, and when it's necessary for you to charge a device, you want to plug in 
to an electrical outlet to plug your electronics device. Or something that was really popular as recently as two years ago becomes a very viable solution when you're traveling. And that's one of those charging bricks where you have a, a, you know, a battery backup that you can plug your device in. That USB will be safe. So you know what I'm talking about? They, uh, they come like 5,000 mAh or whatever you call it, 10,000, 20,000. Those things now are as cheap as $5. You take it with you. When your phone is running out of juice, you plug it into that and you know you're safe. Thanks for taking time out of your day to join us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and your wallet. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can save more and spend less, and don't let anyone ever rip you off. Our main website, Clark.com, and you like bargains, you like deals, check out ClarkDeals.com. I'm asked repeatedly, and have been going back to the 1980s, for guidance on finding some part-time work, something you can do haphazardly on your schedule from your home and all the rest, it's been an area with scam activities forever. And if you ever look for work at home doing a Google search, all you'll see is one scam after another, after another, after another. But even forgetting the scams, when you look at the common gig kind of economy things, it's hard really to make any real money at so many of those. So the opportunity ultimately is for you to draw on what you know and what you love. And I should say as an annex to that, if you are looking for uh, part-time money, we do have a guide at Clark.com where we've kind of culled the herd and looked for organizations that as best we've been able to drill down are legit. But none of them are going to pay a lot of money. If you want to do something part-time that fits your life, your schedule, whatever, look at what you know how to do, what you enjoy doing, whatever that is, and see how you can make money doing it. There are so many things. I was talking with a woman the other day with my wife when we were walking, taking a walk after dinner, and we met this woman who has now quit her job and is full-time doing pet walking and pet sitting. And she learned over time she could expand that where when people are traveling, they might want somebody to house sit for them. And you get paid to stay at somebody else's house or check their mail when they're out of town or all these things. And it was funny looking at her card. It looked like she ran 12 different businesses at once that were all about starting with people's pets, but going way beyond that to doing things for people, doing things for people at their houses. And she's earning such a nice living. She quit her full-time job as a school teacher. I don't know what that says about what we pay school teachers, but she's making more money doing her business that she's been able to carve out in the marketplace. There are so many things like that that you don't have to plug and play in somebody else's Insta business like uh, being a Lyft driver or whatever, that you 
can take what you love, what you enjoy. And it could be something in the arts. Who knows? I saw a story in Kiplinger magazine about how there are these sites that if you're an artist, you can connect to people who want your art or want you to do a custom thing of art for them. There are people who want you to cook for them. There are apps for that. There are so many different kind of things that are areas where what you love or what you're good at or what you know or what you're trained for, you can generate money. I think about this whenever somebody calls me and is looking for something to do part-time or from home. I always ask them a question that the demo is like, why is that relevant? And I always ask, what is it you've done in the past? What is it you know? What are you trained for? What are you educated in? Because the best opportunities for you are going to come in the fields that you're already experienced, that you're already knowledgeable. A lot of times people don't value enough what the marketplace will value in you. So think that through. Catherine's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Catherine. Hi, thanks for my call. Certainly. So you got a question about uh, being in a family that loves to save money. <laughs> we do. We're just looking for places to put it. <laughs> my husband contributes the maximum dollar amount into his 401k. He's got a choice of regular 401k or a Roth. 401k. Based on your advice, we're doing it all into the Roth because for years it was a regular 401k. Um, I've got a spousal Roth IRA, and we're wondering if we can open a Roth IRA for him, like with a separate, just, you know, low cost investor. Well, what kind of income do you have as a family? Um, it's around mid 150s. Then you are a okay. You okay, can, so we can do another Roth account, a Roth IRA for him. Then absolutely, as long as your income is under roughly around two hundred thousand, little okay. just a hair less than that, which most of us we make less than that. You're good. Okay, so it doesn't matter at all what he's putting at work. He's maxim, you know, he's doing the twenty five thousand there. So we can go ahead and he do can do another. He can do another five hundred a month every month into the Roth, unless he's fifty and over. He can do. He, uh, yeah, he's, what's that? He is over fifty. Oh, yes. so then he can do instead of six thousand a year, he can do seven. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much, and right. we appreciate your advice very much. All right. And do you know what percent of Americans are doing what you're doing? where what you're about to do where you max out everything the tax code permits for um, workplace savings and retirement savings i don't know what percentage are doing that what i saw recently was that it's less than one percent then i saw another oh, estimate <laughs> that it's one and a half percent of people whatever it is oh, wow. almost nobody is doing it Maybe that's why I can't really find out much uh, definitively about it then, because it's a non-issue. <laughs> so, right, because, you know, do you know that employers 
have a hard time getting employees to put in enough to grab the full match when an employer offers a match? That's a shame. Yeah, so does he get a match too? He does. Um, wow. And we, we just always tried to do the maximum dollar amount, so the fact that they match, it's just, you know, gravy. Well, this is all wonderful news because it means that you and your husband are going to have financial comfort at the time you retire. You're going to have the independence you want to have when you retire. You're not going to worry about the bills or unexpected expenses that occur. I enjoy sleeping well at night, so that's good to hear. <laughs> yeah, well, good for you. Good I for like that security. <laughs> good for both of you that that you've taken charge, taken control like this. And it's something that, that is not part of our culture. I read something recently, though, that really surprised me, Catherine. I had no idea. So if you go back two generations ago in the United States, Americans used to save, on average, 18 cents of every dollar they make. Today, it's less than six cents. And I believe it's because we have choice everywhere now that we didn't have before. You know, there are people who would blame it on advertising, whatever. I really think it's about the fact that the number of ways that are available to us to spend money today are so much greater than they would have been two generations ago that we are in a total consumption mentality and not a saving and investing mentality. And that's just my guess. I, you know, I think that it requires such a discipline to say no to buying this, that, or the other. And that's how we've kind of spent ourselves into this corner. Paul is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Paul. Hi, Clark. How are you? Great. Thank you, Paul. You have a question for me that's a little unusual. Uh, yeah, I mean, the first thing is uh, I've been listening to the show for a couple years, and I just wanted to let you know how much I appreciate what you and the team do here. Well, thank you um, so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, my question is about protecting assets. So my in-laws, they're in their 70s now, and they're living in a single-family home in Long Island. Um, they're looking at downsides, and they mentioned uh, the possibility of putting the new place in the children's names. Um, they have a few friends who have done this, and I think the idea here is to protect the assets from any possible medical or long-term care costs. Um, so, I don't know, I wanted to just get your idea of uh, whether you think this is something you would recommend, or is there a, a better option like a trust or an estate to be set up? So, as a general rule, uh, doing something like this has a five-year look back. So, if they were need, needing to draw on government resources for long-term care or whatever, there's a period of time that the government can go claw back. So this isn't something you do where you're looking at eminently needing a lot of attention or uh, personalized care like long-term care somewhere. Right, so, yeah. In this particular case, I mean, you know, thankfully my in-laws are healthy. Um, so, I mean, there's no immediate concern. Um, but, you know, you never know. Um, that's what the thought was that maybe uh, it would be better in an estate, um, in which case I think it gets around the five-year look-back period. That's just what the real estate attorney happened to mention, but he, he thought that it would be better to speak with somebody who was actually maybe an estate lawyer or an elder care lawyer. Who would, yeah, who so would you're idea. taking words right out of my mouth. You don't ever do anything like this without meeting with an elder care, elder 
law specialist. It is a completely specialized area of the law, and you don't want a lawyer who has dabbled in it or anything like that. You need a lawyer who this is all he or she does every day is elder care law because there are always unexpected and unintended consequences, and you got to make sure those are addressed. As an example, um, if the children end up with ownership and something happens in the lives of one of the children, do the parents then end up without a place to live? There are a number of factors to consider, and that's why going to see somebody who this is what they do all day long is elder law is really good advice from that real estate lawyer. Okay. And an estate lawyer is not sufficient okay, because it's too, it's too specialized an area. It's a controversial area, and the person needs to be uh, completely up to date on how the laws of the state of New York work in this case because there are wrinkles in how the, how the rules work in each of the 50 states that vary from state to state. Okay, makes sense. And if sure. they want some to, to make it much more focused when they go meet with the lawyer, there are books you can buy that will go through with you uh, some of the things to look for and questions to ask when you go see an elder law attorney. And those are available on Amazon.com or if you can find an actual real physical bookstore. But because (laughs) it's not a a high-demand kind of topic area, probably best to search online for one of the things that's basically like a a book for lay people. You could also look at nolo.com, N-O-L-O.com, which is a publisher of legal information written and forms for non-lawyers. Okay. So spending doing that reading assignment before going to meet with an elder law attorney will make the time with an elder law attorney much more efficient. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Clark. I really appreciate your advice. Certainly. Have a great day. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. McKay joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, McKay. Hi, Clark. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing great. How are you doing? Good, thank you. So you're a fellow four eyes like me, huh? Oh, yeah. And have been for some time, you know, Uh, probably another 20 years or so. But yeah, it's related to that. I've got two questions uh, for you all about LASIK because I'm interested and I'm a bargain hunter, but I want to make sure that I get the right doctor and the right technology. And I'm not sure how to marry those two things. 
And once I do, um, can I use my HSA dollars or even should I? So you can use HSA dollars, to my understanding, C-A-N, use them for LASIK. And you would only do that if you don't want to have the long-term growth of that HSA money. You know, HSA money is so favorable the way it's treated under the tax code that if you can afford to just keep that money alone and pay for your LASIK, there's real advantage to it. But you said something that was such a Clark thing to say. You want to get the best bargain you can, not with LASIK. You know, we, okay. we went through the era um, where there were all those heavy, heavily promoted high-volume laser LASIK places that were doing LASIK for like $399 an eye and all that, and they all are gone now. And it turned out to be a much more specialized business than people really recognized. And the number of people having LASIK is a tiny fraction of what it was. And so it's a business where I would, as cheap as I am, I would only go to somebody who does a zillion of these as an individual doctor, not a high-volume practice that you just see whoever is the one who's going to work on your eyes. I don't know if that made sense. Yeah, so I wouldn't want to look for a company that's just going to hand me off to somebody. Right. You you want want one that uh, there are these, uh, for lack of a better term, they're like high volume boutique laser practices where it's a particular doctor you're seeing and he or she evaluates you and they are much more interested in rejecting you than accepting you because they don't want to have problems. They don't want to have somebody who has eye problems. And if you read the briefing on WebMD about picking somebody? I've read some, yeah. I would. I really like, there's a, there's a briefing from the FDA that I advise you look at, but it's a little mealy in how it's written. You know, they're not as direct as they need to be, but you'll get some ideas from it. But I, okay. I, I like the briefing from WebMD that really makes you think about whether or not this is something you're going to do, what are the potential problems you could have with laser eye surgery, and then how to pick somebody to do that procedure for you if you decide to go forward. My wife had it and loved it. My sister-in-law had it and hated it. It really is a very personal kind of thing based on what kind of results you get as an individual, but also where you go makes a big difference in whether your outcome is going to be good or not. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.